confidence, an enviable quality if ever there was one. Most people think that in order to attract romantic interest, one needs to be attractive or funny or interesting. Not so. All you really need is a little confidence and charm. Imagine, if you will, that you are sitting in a smoky bar. At one end, you see a woman all alone. She is dressed nicely and is generous with a smile. A man approaches her. He is wearing a well-tailored suit and smiles, but just barely. From where you are sitting, you overhear their conversation. He tells her he is a doctor and also owns a nearby hotel. Clearly, this man is wealthy, intelligent, charming, and therefore trustworthy. He flatters the woman up and down and seems extremely interested in her life. That's the secret, you see. We all want to feel important. The man joins her for a drink and easily gets her to divulge her entire story. Before long, he is offering her a place to stay and a job in his hotel. He says he will take care of her, and he will, in a way. She leaves slightly tipsy from the drink, but flat drunk from the attention. You think to yourself, how lucky she was. Months later, you see this gentleman again at the same bar and inquire about the young woman. He states, with confidence, that he has never been in that bar before and doesn't ever recall a woman fitting your description. Surely you are mistaken. But, he says with a smile haunting the corners of his lips, you do seem awfully observant and friendly. A person such as you is probably fine company, and you're dressed too perfectly to drink alone. Later, in a room no larger than a coat closet that seems to have no door, you scream into the darkness, wondering, as the hiss of gas emerges from somewhere along the wall, how you could have trusted this man you hardly knew. How did he gain such power over you in such a small amount of time? But then, we all know how, don't we? Confidence. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. We would definitely be dead. Yes, we would. In this case, <laughs> yeah. we're murdered, both of us. I was already like, yep, no, I know how we're dying this week. <laughs> how many times would I have been dead already? Oh, yeah. I'm like, oh, really? Yeah. You're you're so interested in me and you're so wealthy and professional. He's a doctor, just like my mother wanted. Oh, he's a doctor and a hotel owner. Oh, my. An entrepreneur. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Hey, Leslie. Hey, Holly. Hey, fiends. And welcome to Murder Castle Week. Whoop, whoop. Leslie has been dying for us to cover this case since we started the podcast. And the time yeah. has finally come <laughs> here. Yay. I only know, 
like very little about this. I know certain highlights, but I don't know all of the pieces. So I'm super excited and I've kept myself away because I knew that we would cover him and I wanted to be... I know so much. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I hope so. You're the one doing it. (laughs) I have never encountered a case with so many, so complete, so different versions of the truth. Yeah, there's a lot that I had to sift through, but I'm going to give you my best like piece together of this puzzle. For those of you who haven't put it together yet, we are talking about H.H. Holmes and his Hotel of Death, Mm. which seems pretty appropriate to arrive on the heels of Elisa Lamb. But before we begin, I think it's important that we make a brief comment on the current state of our country. We are horrified by the senseless murder of George Floyd and feel that the systemic racism that runs rampant in America is a grievous and centuries-old wrong that needs to be righted. We are doing our best to donate and educate ourselves. We will be using our platform to shed light on some relevant stories that we know need to be told right now, but we did not want to do that in a rushed manner. Clearly, true crime fascinates us all, but the fact remains that we are talking about real people who suffered greatly and in many cases lost their lives. Their stories deserve to be told correctly and with care. We will continue to share resources on our social media platforms, and we are always open for discussion. To our listeners of color, your lives matter. We stand with you now and always. Much love. Okay, I'm glad we got to say that, so... And if anyone knows of a case that is relevant to the statement I just made, um, a crime against a person of color, a story that you, you feel really needs to be told right now, please, please tell us. Put it on our Facebook group. Send it in a message to Leslie or myself. We're happy, more than happy to take suggestions. So absolutely. Just going to put that out there in the world for all of you guys. Also, I know this sounds so pandery after that. Like, I feel like I can't say anything as as important as that, you know? (laughs) Don't forget to leave us a five-star review over on Apple Podcasts. (laughs) And um, if you would like to further support We Would Be Dead, you can give us a little monthly donation on Patreon. I'm researching cases right now to cover for our patrons-only special treat this month. So get your donation in so you get access to that. Um, And you will also have access to the audio version of our Campfire Stories, which is switching over to our Patreon podcast, I think this coming week. Does that sound right? Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, You'll still be able to catch them when we do them live, but if you want the audio, you have to be our patron. Now, on to the man of the hour. I doubt that any of you are going into this totally blind. Most of us have know one thing or another about H.H. Holmes. And he is apparently having some kind of a moment right now, according to Leslie, because I have no idea what the kids are talking about these days and rely heavily on her for that. (laughs) I don't, wait, I don't know what you're talking about. You were like, he's popular right now. We have to do H.H. Holmes. Oh, yeah. I don't know why everybody's been talking about him. I have no idea. See, I don't know this. You know what the kids are talking about. I do know like the kids know, that H.H. Holmes was the basis for Mr. Marsh in the hotel season of American Horror Story. And if I ran into him, I would 100% be dead because I am a sucker for old-timey verbiage and a well-tailored suit. Mm. Yes, please. Who played him in that season? Because I haven't watched that one yet. Evan Peters. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All of it was good. <laughs> Rory. <laughs> I don't get it. Oh, that was from, uh, what was the old-timey one? Uh, the season of it of American Horror Story. Yeah, or what are we talking about? Um, where they stayed in that like colonial house. Oh no, he was um in Murder House. No, he was I'm Tate. Sorry. <laughs> I no no no. 
<laughs> I know. I'm so sorry. It's like that North Carolina town. Oh, the oh my gosh, the Roanoke. It starts with an R. Roanoke. Roanoke. He was his yeah. name is Rory in that. His name was Rory, and what um, a pull. <laughs> I know. <laughs> of all the seasons to remember, you remember the one that people were like, meh, about. Well, because his wife or girlfriend in the mm-hmm. episode, what's her, you know, the main actress yeah. that's in all of them. But she she would start crying on the camera, just be like, Rory, oh, Rory. Yeah. Good one. Now I we like it. We yell it all the time in our house. I like it. I forgot <laughs> okay. all about that. And I'm glad I remember now. H.H. Holmes is also the subject of the half factual, half fictional novel, The Devil in White City. Guys, I need you to remember that it is half fictional because a lot of people think it is a completely historically accurate account and use it as a source from which to report. You cannot do that. It, there's a lot of creative license and I'm, it's, it's fantastic. Read it, enjoy it, but don't base everything you know off of it. Also, that book is rumored to be... Um, a film in the works starring Leonardo DiCaprio as H.H. H. Holmes. Ooh, I would yes. watch the shit out of that. Yes. You can also buy that book at katemaymac.org. Oh. Support nonprofits. Okay, Mac. <laughs> Leslie works for Mac. Support Leslie, therefore. Mm-hmm. Mm, thank you. But I digress like eight times already. <laughs> this episode is going to be seven hours long. Sorry, John. H.H. <laughs> H. Holmes, in case you don't know, was a serial killer so evil that he manufactured an entire hotel to be a flawless, soundless fortress of murder. He was convicted of nine murders, I believe, but is rumored to have been responsible for as many as 200, and he confessed himself to 28. So you can see how murky the facts are already. But before we get to all of that, a little background is required to truly understand this smooth talk and murder machine. And so I feel that it is best to begin at the beginning. Henry Howard Holmes was actually born Herman Webster Mudgett. <laughs> it makes me laugh every time. I kind of wanted, wanted to call him Herbit, Herman through the whole story, but I was like, no, it'll get confusing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he was born on May 16th, 1861 in Gilmanton, New Hampshire to Levi Horton Mudgett and Theodate, Theodate, T-H-E-O-D-A-T-E. If you want to give me a pronunciation, please feel free. Paige Price. First off, I absolutely get why he changed his name. He upgraded himself big time. H.H. Holmes is slick as hell. Well done there, Herman. <laughs> Mudget. Herman Webster Mudget. Not, not as smooth talking sounding. No. I don't know if I would let that guy convince me of a lot of things. Gilmanton is an overwhelmingly white middle-class town. In fact, it is so white and middle-class that it served as the basis for Peyton Place, which was an extremely popular book, movie, and television series. It was like a soap opera, I think, about, quote, how three women are forced to come to terms with their identity, both as women and sexual beings, in a small, conservative, gossipy New England town, end quote. That sounds great. Right? I know. I Netflix that. <laughs> So little Herman did not grow up on like a rough side of town. Holmes was the middle child in a family of five. He had an older brother, an older sister, as well as a younger brother and a younger sister. So this is the prime location to be the kid in the family who gets ignored, basically. The Mudgets were a devoutly Methodist family and religion played a large role in raising their children. His father, Levi, worked as a farmer, house painter, and even the village postmaster. His mother stayed at home with the children, as most women did at the time. Holmes's parents were known to be severe in their disciplinary methods. If a child would act out, they would be punished by being locked in the attic for a full day, 
where they would not be allowed to either speak or eat. I know, right? The Mudgets were also known to discipline with violence, especially when Levi, that's Holmes's father, had been drinking, which was apparently all the time. One source states that when Holmes was a boy, his father had been drinking heavily one afternoon and Holmes was making a lot of noise, as kids are known to do. When Levi threatened to discipline him, Holmes began to panic and cry and shout. And it's no wonder because his dad sounds pretty scary and his house sounds like a super tense, scary place. So to get Holmes to calm down and act the way he wanted a child to act, his father grabbed a nearby rag soaked with chloroform and held it over Holmes's nose and mouth until he was unconscious. Then Levi left the room, his unconscious son remaining on the floor. Now. That is a sensational story and a great addition to any biography, but it probably isn't true. While chloroform is extremely easy to make and to buy, even to this day, this present day, you can buy chloroform. It's not something that was ever just like lying around in people's homes. In fact, chloroform was relatively new in the medical world at the time and highly suspect, as were most forms of anesthesia during their introductory phase. People were afraid it might be more dangerous than the actual surgery itself, and newspapers published every single chloroform-related fatality in a glaring headline. So while that last bit is good storytelling, again, it's probably not true. And we're going to see a lot of instances like this in this story, because H.H. Holmes loved to tell stories about himself. If he couldn't be famous, he would be infamous. And when he went down for his crimes, instead of claiming innocence, he exaggerated his guilt by leaps and bounds, claiming to have killed people that were, in some cases, still alive. Newspapers love a good headline, though, so they ran with all of his claims. This is called yellow journalism, and it was a huge problem in the late 1800s. These tactics of of printing sensational stories with no basis in research or facts led to tabloid journalism today. So I hope you all enjoyed that tangent because I really liked researching it. And no, I will not tell you how to make chloroform. It's pretty easy to find on the internet. (laughs) Not that I'm making chloroform. I see what you're doing back there. Anyway, back to the unpleasant childhood of H.H. Holmes. Because of his rigid home life, Holmes was a rather meek and fearful child. He was exceedingly intelligent and outpaced all of his classmates in academics, but Holmes was small and not particularly athletic. This left him to be the quiet, nervous, smart kid. And I I think we know what school traditionally does to the quiet, nervous, smart kid. And it is not any favors. Holmes was described as, quote, detached from other children and strangely cold. So with no friends to speak of and a less than welcoming home life, Holmes took to other hobbies. He began spending his days in the woods where he would catch and dissect small animals. Sometimes he would kill them first. Sometimes he wouldn't. So he's just like pulling squirrels apart alive. Ew. Yep. Gross, but true. Mudget. Herman. (laughs) Holmes had a curious mind and he views these early cruelties as science experiments. As I have mentioned in an earlier episode, if you have even one leg of the McDonald triad, which is animal cruelty, fire setting, and bedwetting in later childhood, There is probably violence in your future. We know he sets fires later in life, so it stands to reason that he could have experimented with that as a kid. No word on the bedwetting, though. Ugh. Just the image of like a pale little serial killer in the making sitting in the woods pulling apart living squirrels is probably the the most unsettling thing ever. Mm. It's convenient they left out the bedwetting. (laughs) 
you know, to preserve his dignity. Yes, of course. Always dignity. Now, clearly, other kids couldn't just leave the weird, withdrawn, squirrel-murdering kid alone. Oh, no, no, no. Holmes was mercilessly bullied. Local children had discovered that Holmes was afraid of human skeletons, which is weird, but everybody has something. At this time, it was commonplace for doctor's offices to house a fully articulated human skeleton for... Educational purposes? No. Of course not. Doctors used to be the number one collectors of medical oddities. The weirder your specimens were, the bigger your bragging rights were. And you had to start with a skeleton. That makes sense to me. Yeah, yeah. Because that's what they researched. That's what they did. That was their thing. Yeah. It was. So having like, you know, the, the Mutter Museum is based around like a, a doctor and his collection. So mm-hmm. I think in a past life, I was married to like a creepy Victorian doctor. Yeah, you might have been for sure. We really have the same aesthetics and interests. Yeah. <laughs> and I wanted to go into the medical field. So that's why I like dig it. There you go. <laughs> Maybe you were married to a creepy Victorian doctor. I don't think so. Maybe I was uh, secretly like a female doctor, but my husband had to be the doctor, but I did all the work behind the scenes. Oh, I like your backstory. That's a good one. I was probably just like, you know, somebody's somebody's wife, but I was really into all their stuff. <laughs> anyway, don't think, think too long about that one. <laughs> a group of Holmes's classmates got together one day and ambushed Holmes after school, forcing him into the office of a local doctor. They then held him nose to nose or nose to nose hole with said skeleton and forced a terrified, crying Holmes to touch it. But... Something happened in that moment. Holmes stopped crying and began observing the skeleton. He wasn't afraid at all. He was fascinated. See what I mean? I look as I would look at a skeleton all day long. Yeah. He got over his fears. Real, real quick, as soon as he saw one in person. Holmes cites this event as a defining moment in his life. He claimed this was the moment he decided he wanted to become a doctor. Which without all the other murdery stuff would be like a fine and inspiring story. But there's that it's not. (laughs) Holmes threw himself into his studies (laughs) and graduated high school at just 16 years old. After high school, Holmes would go on to teach in Gilmanton and then in the neighboring town of Alton. On July 4th, 1878, Holmes, still going by his given name at the time, Herman Webster Mudgett, married Clara Lovering in Alton and the pair soon welcomed their son, Robert Lovering Mudgett, still a Mudgett who was born on February 3rd, 1880. And if you're doing the mental math, that makes Holmes 20, really 20 years old? Yep. He had graduated high school, procured several teaching jobs, got married, and had a son by the time he was 20. Can you even imagine that? (laughs) No. I was barely confident enough to order my own entree when I was 20. Yeah, I know. Same. (laughs) I knew nothing about anything. Hand the phone off to my parents for the takeout order. Yes! <laughs> but no, he was like a full-on a full adult. At 18, Holmes had enrolled at the University of Vermont in Burlington, Vermont. And that felt like UVM. a... UVM. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Love it. That felt like a lot of times to say Vermont. Holmes didn't care for the University of Vermont. Uh, I said it again. So he decided to leave and instead study at the University of Michigan's Department of Medicine and Surgery. <sighs> Traitor. Oh, disdain for Michigan. Okay. Disdain. Yeah, I'm an OSU fan, so. I don't know what that means, but all right. Oh, Ohio State. You should know because you should also be an Ohio State I, fan. I guess I am. <laughs> <sighs> Will, we'll have to talk to you. <laughs> what do they play? 
football. Okay. Well, they play everything, but it's it's our football teams. Anyway. Oh, right. They have all the flags. <laughs> yes. Sure. Are, what? Don't they do like a show? I don't know. We'll talk about it later. I have enough diversions. <laughs> While there, he worked in the anatomy lab under Professor Herdman, then the chief anatomy instructor. Holmes had apprenticed in New Hampshire under Dr. Nahum. I did not look up how to say that. Nahum, N-A-H-U-M, White, a noted advocate of human dissection. Now, up until this point, Holmes had been getting by on the money he made teaching and the money his young wife, Clara, had brought into the marriage. Clara was from a wealthy family and had come with a sizable dowry, but soon enough, these funds began to dry up, so Holmes came up with a plan. We have talked about resurrection men in the past in our Burke and Hare episode, so we will all know that at a certain point in medical history, cadavers were a valuable commodity. But mostly, the people profiting off them were thieves who sold freshly buried bodies to medical schools. Holmes, on the other hand, was the, on the other side of all of that. So he needed to work the system from, an out, from the outside in. Holmes would steal cadavers from the laboratory disfigure them so they appeared to be not only horribly injured, but also completely unidentifiable. Then he would plant them in places where it would appear that they had been killed in a terrible accident. But before Holmes dropped them off and waited for someone to discover them, he would make up a name for them and take out an insurance policy on this person that he made up that he claimed was a family member. Once the body was brought to authorities, Holmes would identify the body and collect the insurance money because he's basically a scammer all the time. Holmes did this for a little while while gradually upping the ante on the policies he took out. Meanwhile, roommates of his and Clara's reported that Holmes was cruel and violent to his wife, which they did not like, but clearly did nothing about. Cool, roommates, good job. During this time, Holmes continued with his studies, but nearly was unable to graduate when a scandal surfaced. Scandal. Apparently, he had been carrying on with a local hairdresser and got her pregnant. Ooh. I know. Scandal. She insisted that he marry her, but Holmes denied the accusations and refused. And in those days, that kind of thing could get you in professional trouble. Several of the faculty members at the University of Michigan did not want to grant Holmes his degree, but they were overruled and Holmes was allowed to graduate. And graduate he did in June of 1884. Shortly after Holmes carried out his, shortly after his graduation, sorry, Holmes carried out his last and most profitable cadaver insurance scheme, collecting $12,500. Wow. Which is like a bazillion dollars in today money. Yeah. After pocketing his, this grand sum, Holmes would pick up and leave his wife and child. Cool. Cool, man. Yeah, he's a cool guy. They then returned to New Hampshire and never heard from him again. But don't feel bad for them. They were better off, obviously. And his son, Robert Mudgett, went on to become the city manager in Orlando, Florida. Oh, Florida man. Oh, man. I hope he wasn't Florida man. <laughs> there was no Disney World either, so it wasn't as fun. But whatever. He was fine. He didn't kill anybody. That's a win. At this point, Holmes drops off the radar for a little bit. Now, there are scattered reports of his activity, and Pinkerton detectives were able to uncover a few events here and there, and here's what they came up with. allegedly. Holmes spent time in St. Paul, Minnesota, where he ran a shop briefly before selling off its contents at a discount and running off with the money, which this seems pretty on brand for him. So he would buy all the stuff on credit, sell it for a discount, collect all the money, and then leave without paying his debts. 
Holmes was also reported to have spent some time in Philadelphia, where he briefly worked in a hospital and a pharmacy before getting into trouble when a little boy died as the result of a prescription Holmes had filled for him. There are reports that Holmes briefly taught at a school in New York during which time he stayed in a room at a nearby farm. Holmes then had an affair with the farmer's wife and left abruptly one night, having never paid his rent and leaving the farmer's wife pregnant. Oh, scandal again. Everybody's pregnant all the time. He must be incredibly fertile. Yeah. Good for you, H.H. In August of 1886, Holmes moved to Chicago, but not before formally changing his name, finally, to Dr. Henry Howard Holmes. Well, it wasn't like legal or anything. He just started using that as his name and everybody went with it. So Cool. Yeah. Holmes opened up an office in the North Shore of Wilmette, Illinois, which is like a suburb of Chicago, I think, posing as an inventor of medical tonics and cures. Quack medicine, which is a topic I love. So if anyone ever wants to discuss that, please hit me up. I like a lot of weird stuff. It's fine. Again, that would have probably been my job. (laughs) I probably would have worked there. (laughs) So that's another way I'd be dead. (laughs) Use this tonic of opiates and alcohol to cure all your problems. And then shock yourself with this wand and you'll be better forever. Can also be used as a toner. (laughs) (laughs) Your arsenic toner makes you a nice pale color. Oh God, (laughs) that's real. While in Chicago, he met a woman named Myrta J. Belknap or Belknap because my last name is Knapp and I don't pronounce the K. So it's one of the two. Who again came from a very wealthy family. Remember though, Holmes is still married to Clara, so this is technically bigamy, but out of sight, out of mind, I suppose. Their marriage was a strange one though because they didn't really live together. Shortly after they were married, Holmes moved to Chicago to conduct business, leaving Myrta behind in Wilmette. Holmes would visit visit occasionally, and the two had a daughter named Lucy who went on to be a public school teacher. Somehow his kids come out fine. I guess nurture wins over nature in this case. I am assuming he either abandoned his shop or left Myrta to deal with it because there are no reports of whatever became of it. There are, however, reports that Myrta's father was not very fond of Mr. Holmes. He later stated that Holmes tried to cheat him out of property by forging his name on deeds and then attempted to poison him. Mm, I believe it. Yeah, again, on brand. Holmes eventually stopped coming back to visit Myrta and Lucy, which in the end seemed to suit them fine. Yeah, it seems like all the kids come out great when he's gone. They do. Also, like, for those who are keeping score, he now has two wives. Myrta, however, didn't slow down Holmes at all. She was simply the source of a little more money. Had he succeeded in poisoning her father, they would have collected a tidy sum of of insurance money, I'd wager. But since that didn't work out, she was no longer of use to him. Meanwhile, in Chicago, Holmes walked into Elizabeth Holton's pharmacy. The two chatted briefly, and Holmes noticed that the Holtons seemed to be struggling to keep up with all the work in the shop themselves. Holton quickly offered this smart young doctor a job. Elizabeth Holton was in her 60s at the time, and there are a lot of reports that her husband was old and infirm, but that actually could not have been farther from the truth. In fact, Mr. Holton was a fellow Michigan alumnus and just a few years younger than Holmes himself. The pair also did not vanish and they were never suspected to be murdered by Holmes, as many sources will report. Holmes did, however, buy the pharmacy from them eventually and continued to run it on his own, using the profits to purchase the vacant lot across the street. On this lot, he began constructing a large two-story building. Holmes claimed that the ground floor would be a new and larger drugstore, 
and the second floor would be used for apartments to rent. Holmes had quite a few investors attached to this project. However, they began to lose interest when he failed to pay the iron and steel workers on the project and they abandoned ship before construction was finished. So we almost didn't have a murder castle. Oh, bummer. That's okay. It gets better. Don't worry. Could you imagine? (laughs) We wouldn't be talking about this. That's for sure. (laughs) We'd have to skip a week. Oh, man. (laughs) Then Holmes got an idea. A wonderful, terrible, awful idea. He would add a third floor to what he now called his castle and make it a hotel. Mm. Why would a new small hotel at that specific point in time attract investors at a furious pace? Well, something was about to happen in Chicago that would draw thousands of visitors from all over the world into the city. The World's Columbian Exposition, better known as the Chicago World's Fair. The World's Fair was quite a thing to behold in its heyday, and an entire temporary city would crop up around it, much like the Olympics, but more fun. And Leslie is going to tell you all about it. Yay. Take it away. So welcome to the World's Columbian Exposition. The year is 1893. This is delightful. (laughs) Yay. (laughs) So this year, the organizers decided to celebrate their 400th anniversary of Christopher Columbus's arrival to the New World, which was obviously in 1492. Mm? The city of Chicago beat out New York City, Washington, D.C., and St. Louis for the... Uh, rights to have the World's Fair. Uh, This was quite a financial fight that started in 1880s. So this is where it reminds me of the Olympics because I know they have to, you know, all the cities and countries fight for this. Yep. New York City was pretty much in the lead, uh, but Chicago wasn't too far behind. New York City had financial titans like Cornelius Vanderbilt and J.P. Morgan, if Mm. you've ever heard of them. Indeed. Uh, So they were hoping to pledge, pledge a bunch of money, but Chicago did have some meatpacking millionaires, so they weren't too far behind. But it wasn't until Lyman Gage, who was the president of one of the largest banks in the Midwest, arranged for millions more in financing, and that ended up being the momentum that swung to Chicago's favor. Uh, unbeknownst to the visitors, there was a mass murder in their midst. <clears throat> um, so I I have about 20 pages about H.H. Holmes, but I guess that's what we're talking about today. <laughs> so I'm just going to go past it. Uh, don't worry, I have 20 <laughs> more, I think. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> but there was another murder that happened during the World's Fair. Ooh, I want to hear it. Yes. So uh, this murder happened two days prior to the closing ceremonies. They're, they had a recently elected mayor who was uh, Carter Harrison Sr. He was shot and killed by Patrick Eugene Prendergast. He was a disgruntled and delusional office seeker. He believed that when Harrison was elected, he would get this political appointment. He thought he was going to be on this council. I don't know why he thought that. He just decided that. <laughs> he just did. Okay. Yeah. He, yeah. He just thought that that's what was going to happen. He kept writing letters in, trying to get meetings with them. Nobody was answering him. So finally he just got fed up and shot him. Whoa. <laughs> 
Crazy, yeah. World's Fair makes people crazy. Totally. I know. He worked for a newspaper uh, in Chicago, and he was really adamant about um, trying to fix the railroad crossings. He thought they were really dangerous. And he just got in his head that if this mayor was elected, he would be on the council. I don't know what happened with his story. Like, (laughs) they might have made him sound crazier than he was, but he still shot him. That sounds pretty crazy. Yeah. So because of the shooting, the organizers of the fair quickly decided to cancel the closing ceremony. So instead of a closing ceremony, they did like a memorial service for um, the mayor who was who had run for five uh, non-consecutive terms. Wow. There. Yeah. Which tells me that they like loved him and then decided they were like, we're sick of you. We need somebody else. But then they were like, we're sorry. Come come back. That's pretty funny. He must have been great if they were like five times. Yeah. Hey, get that guy back. I know. So everybody in the city was like super bummed. So that's why they did like a memorial. Um, But other than murders, there were other things that happened. What else was at the fair? Um, This was the first time that the exposition would have national pavilions. So 50 foreign countries and 43 other states and territories would be represented. Cool. Um, They brought a lot of amazing things. A couple were uh, Philly sent the Liberty Bell Mm. and they also sent two replicas. So one was rolled in oats and the other was made of oranges. Oh, (laughs) yeah. That's delightful. (laughs) I know. Let me see that oat bell. Looks fun. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Norway was pretty cool. They built a full-sized replica of a Viking ship and sailed it all across the ocean to the fair. Okay, I like that. That's fun. Mm -hmm. And then there was even a full-service Creole restaurant uh, from Louisiana that was there. Yes. There were also a ton of commercial products. So the World Fair was really cool. They just, like, had a a ton of things. You can go there for months, years, like, and see all of these cool vendors. It went on for, like, two years, right? Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, some of the, a lot of people would debut products there. So a couple of these products that came out were cream of wheat, Mm-mm. juicy fruit gum, jacker, uh, sorry, jacker cracks, <laughs> cracker jacks. Jacker cracks. <laughs> That's like the generic brand. The name, yeah, the generic brand, the Aldi brand. <laughs> <laughs> and PBR or Paps Blue Ribbon. Well, all right. Uh, some of the cool technical products uh, were the dishwasher was had like an early debut. Oh, cool. And the non-forgiving fluorescent light bulbs. Ugh. So that was interesting. Um, ooh, and the U.S. government was feeling super festive. So they had uh, made their first postcards that year. Oh. And commemorative stamps and two new commemorative coins. So this is where we have a commemorative quarter and the half dollar. Do you remember who's on the half dollar? No. So since we were celebrating um, the 40th year of Columbus discovering America. Was it Columbus? so they think. It was Columbus. And on the quarter, they had Queen Elizabeth of Spain because she funded Columbus's voyage. And she would be the first woman honored on a coin. Oh, good for her. Mm -hmm. Sure. (laughs) I know Columbus wasn't exactly Uh, (laughs) wonderful, but I'm sure we'll talk about that at some point in time. Uh, So when you think of the World's Fair, is there a structure that comes to mind, Tali? Um, no. A city? No. <laughs> I always think of the Ferris wheel. Oh, like yeah. As being the thing. Because I always think of that movie, Meet Me in St. Louis. Oh. <laughs> clang, clang, clang with the trolley. <laughs> ding, ding, ding with the bell. <laughs> yes. We got we it. We did it. <laughs> Guys, we planned that beforehand. 
I think it's funnier that we planned it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> but anyway, so the Ferris wheel was cool. This was, um, I didn't know this, but this is when it was invented mm. by a man with a wonderful name. George Washington Gale Ferris Jr. Oh, there's a Ferris. Excellent. Mm. Yes. Um, he was a Pittsburgh-based bridge builder and steel magnet. Um, his intention for this build was to rival the attraction that was at the Paris World Fair in 1889, which was the Eiffel Tower. Uh, not the, the same, wheel was but... Not the same, no. But the wheel was 264 feet tall. It fit 2,160 people at a time, and it cost 50 cents to ride, which was twice as much as a ticket to the fair. Okay, that feels enormous. Is that, like, way bigger than other... It is enormous. I mean, you could still go see it. Really? Yeah, it's now in St. Louis. So 10 years later, when St. Louis had their World Fair, they bought it from the organizers to bring over. Oh, we got to get a picture of that for our our, our Mm -hmm. photo suite. Yeah. That's cool. It's crazy. So the cool thing about the Ferris wheel is that it actually saved Chicago because they had kind of gone way over budget uh, <laughs> with all of the buildings. And that, one that happens a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With like the Olympics, things like that it makes it really hard. So they're hoping that they make their money back. And this Ferris wheel was the way that they did that. Nice. Everybody wanted to ride it. So I don't blame they them. They did pretty well. That's fun. Um, so the other thing to come out of uh, the World's Fair was... The White City. So the exposition planners wanted to showcase the nation, which was still coming to terms with the Civil War that had just ended only 28 years earlier. Oh, that's right. And Chicago had just, uh, only 22 years before, they had that big fire that destroyed, like, much of their city. Yes. So since this was one of the first World's Fairs to have um, a bunch of other countries coming, Mm -hmm. they just wanted to show them, like, hey, I know we're, like, kind of new, but, like, we're all together. Like, we all love each other. Hmm. We're doing great. Like, look at us go. Success. (laughs) Yeah. We're super strong. Hmm. Um, So Daniel Burnham... Uh, He served as the fair's lead architect and oversaw the design and planning of the fair's main buildings. They were massive neoclassical structures uh, that came to be known collectively as the White City. And despite their imposing appearance, the buildings were made from wood frames wrapped in staff, which was a plaster mixture that created the illusion of stone. So when the sun hit the facades, the buildings would actually glisten in the light, which was probably really cool to see. Pretty. Mm-hmm. So the White City stood for less than six months. The and in these buildings, they had a lot of the vendors. It was it felt like a city when you walked in. They and the idea was that they were going to become part of the city. Interesting. They, that's what they wanted it to look like. It was all part of this uh, city beautiful movement. And which we still kind of do today. It's it's kind of how our major cities like Washington, D.C. was the next one to do it after seeing how Chicago looked at this World Fair. But it was just a way to make their cities look basically less poor, like they had more room and parks and all of these things. And so instead of putting money into their communities oh. to help the people, oh. they instead put it into their buildings to kind of make it look like they were doing better. Ugh, to like pretend they were yeah. richer than they were. And cool. that's definitely one side of it. There's a whole other side because it does have to do with this art movement as well. So okay. um, that is just one feeling about <laughs> the city beautiful movement. I'll take it. 
So uh, most of the buildings were destroyed during a fire that happened. Um, well, so the exposition actually closed in late October of 1893. So that was not, I don't, I guess it didn't last for two years. Oh, I like thought you it thought. did. Oh, well. Or maybe just that section. It might have just been that section. Maybe. I apologize. I didn't look that I did up. not research any of the fair. I turned that <laughs> straight over to you. <laughs> so, um... It There was a huge fire, again, that destroyed most of those buildings. Um, but there is still one standing. They uh, It was the Palace of the Fine Arts, and the staff replaced it with uh, concrete, and it still stands today. It's the Chicago's Museum of Science and Industry. Oh, cool. Yeah. And then one other little factoid about the fair, which I thought was really interesting and somewhat relevant, um, because, again, this was not too long after the Civil War. Um, there were still a lot of protesters coming out now um. Um, because the African-American community and women both felt like they weren't going to be represented well within the fair. And so the... They probably weren't. They weren't. I mean, they did have some vendors in there that were women that were African-American, but it wasn't enough. Um, so there were a lot of protests outside of it. Um, I know a lot of the organizers tried to keep them at bay because they didn't want the visitors seeing it. But, you know, the the whole fair was supposed to be a way to, like, show the whole world that like they were, you know, super supportive of their country and everything was like good and mm -hmm. fine, but it, there was still a lot of stuff going on in the background. Wow. Yeah. So that's what was going on. Cool. Thank you for that. So as you can see, the World's Fair was quite a big deal. It would attract people from all over the country and in fact, all over the world and therefore needing more places to stay. So that makes sense why H.H. Holmes's castle would have been successful with investors. And with this new angle, construction was resumed on what would later be known as his murder castle. Now, I'm assuming that Holmes either constructed some things himself or dealt with very well-paid, very tight-lipped workers. And one of these well-paid, tight-lipped workers was a carpenter named Benjamin Peitzel. Holmes liked Peitzel. He didn't actually like a lot of people, but he liked Peitzel. He was helpful, interested, and quiet. He was married with five children, and after construction of the hotel was complete, he stuck around and became Holmes's loyal accomplice. Some call him his henchman or, you know, his lackey. By now, you have probably guessed that this castle was ju not just an ordinary hotel. Oh, no, no, no. The castle was a well-oiled machine designed to murder people and render their crimes invisible. And now the moment we've all been waiting for. Let's talk about the inner workings of this hotel. <laughs> Holmes ingeniously constructed an intricate labyrinth of false walls, trap doors, hidden chutes and staircases, and rooms outfitted with all the trappings of an intricate nightmare. There were torture rooms, rumored to contain a medieval rack in one of them, which is a totally a rumor. The police never found a medieval stretching rack. You're going to read that everywhere? It's not true. And every single source claims that there are, quote, elaborate torture rooms. They just don't describe them very well. The nearest I can figure from combining them all is that they were rooms devoted to vivisection. Word of the day. I love when we get over what word of the day in. Vivisection is just about the most unethical thing that can be done to a human. And it was absolutely never medically acceptable, even in the darkest days of medicine. Vivisection is live dissection. 
Vivisection entomologically means a surgery on a living being. All forms of open surgery on living people are technically human vivisection. However, colloquially, it just means an unwilling person, like basically dissected alive. So essentially, someone, a person would be strapped to a table and dissected with or without anesthesia. And, and you know, whether they used it to, depended on how Holmes was feeling that day. Sometimes he apparently used it, sometimes he didn't. The reason I believe this part of the torture room theory is because Holmes had a history of doing this very thing with small animals in his youth, and he studied human dissection rigorously in college. This is something he liked doing and was well acquainted with, so that would make sense. There are also quite a lot of rooms devoted to efficient and mess-free murders. There were asphyxiation rooms, which were either equipped with thin pipes that would slowly fill the room with deadly gas, like little mini gas chambers, or there were rooms, these asphyxiation rooms were also, um, they could be just little airtight rooms where someone would enter and just suffocate. Some rooms were as tiny as a coffin and lightless, and they were just basically a place to store a person until they gradually expired from starvation and dehydration. Or like a terror heart attack, which is precisely how I would have gone out in one of those places. Yeah, for sure. Just put me in a drawer. I'm going to have a heart attack. I'm done. They remind me of the coffin cells um, of the Salem witch trials, which were jail cells so tiny that the occupant couldn't even sit down. I can't wait to go back to Salem. That's not why. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) So I can sit in a cell. (laughs) Some rooms were just lined with metal plates and wall-mounted blow torches, which would just incinerate a person, basically. Um, And still other rooms just lacked a door. The only way to enter or leave these rooms was through a series of trap doors. And we don't know how the victims in these rooms expired, but I can't imagine it was pleasant. There are a lot of theories about other kinds of rooms, but these are the kinds that police seem to back up. They also back up that there were a lot of like false walls and like hidden passages and stuff. One of my favorite stories that I don't, that I actually didn't include, but I'm going to now, is that during when he was outfitting the hotel with furniture, he ordered all this like beautiful ornate stuff and they delivered it. And then the furniture company was like trying to collect on their, on his debts. They wanted their money, obviously. So they showed up at the hotel and they're like, we're here to repossess all of our shit. You didn't pay. And he goes, oh, it never arrived. And they said, I'm sorry, what now? He said, no, no, it never arrives. You're welcome to go inside. They went inside. The hotel was empty. He had hidden all of the furniture in like a big ballroom and just wallpapered over the door. Wild. Yeah. So it was a false wall. And police like found it all. He couldn't use it after that. He had to get other stuff. <laughs> so it just like stayed there forever. <laughs> that was the furniture That's room. so funny. Isn't that weird? Now, if you're anything like me, and I know a few of you sickos absolutely are, you're wondering, A, how could no one hear those victims scream? People had to scream when they were being disemboweled alive. And B, what happened to all the bodies? Well, first, Holmes had all the rooms designed for murder completely soundproofed. Quite literally, no one could hear them scream. And all the murder rooms led to the basement. Do you really think this place didn't have a murder basement? Come on, of course it did. It had the best murder basement. Damn. I know. The basement of the hotel was equipped, uh, equipped with quick lime pits. Quick lime will like dissolve a human body pretty fast. Um, and acid baths designed to dissolve bodies or rather just parts of them. Plus a large metal table and an impressive array of surgical tools. This stuff is also actually found. This is totally factual. This is wild. It sounds like the Joker from Batman. Kind of. Maybe they took inspiration. Look that up, fiends. Tell us. 
<laughs> you see, Holmes was a businessman above all else, and he did not kill if he could not gain a profit. Remember when I told you that all old-timey doctors' offices had skeletons? Well, Holmes remembered this too, and he just so happened to have quite an impressive array of them to sell for top dollar. A colleague's of a colleague, sorry, of Holmes's was especially talented at articulating skeletons, and when Holmes would come into one, he would call this gentleman and he would come in, do a bang-up job of putting it together, and then Holmes would sell it. The basement was also equipped with an incinerator or a makeshift crematorium. Um, so what couldn't be sold or dissolved would simply be reduced to ash and swept away. So very, very efficient. While this tower of death was finishing up construction on the, of the third floor, Holmes had also added a jewelry store to his original pharmacy across the street. Remember, originally he bought the pharmacy across the street and then started construction on the murder hotel. So he's in this pharmacy across the street um, and he decides to add a, a jewelry counter to it. And he did that, of course, for a lady because he was quite the ladies' man. This time, the lady was a woman named Julia Smythe. She was a married woman with a young daughter, the wife of a man named Ned Connor, who had moved into Holmes's building. Julia and Holmes were obviously having an affair, and she expressed the desire to have a job. So Holmes added the jewelry counter and hired her to work at it. He's a real gentleman. After... Ned Connor, her husband, found out that Julia was having an affair with Holmes. He quit his job and moved away, leaving Julia and her daughter Pearl behind. Julia gained custody of Pearl and remained in Chicago, continuing her relationship with Holmes and moving into the now-finished hotel. Julia soon fell pregnant, but Holmes had no desire for another child, so he insisted that he would have to give Julia an abortion, and Julia adamantly refused. Julia and Pearl disappeared on Christmas Eve of 1891 and were never seen again. Holmes later claimed that she had died during an abortion that he insisted on giving her, though no bodies were ever found for either one of them, and what truly happened to the two has never been confirmed. They didn't ask about the kid. They are like, what happened to Julia? Never mind the other one. Wild. I know, isn't that weird? And I, I mean, like I said, there's just 700,000 versions of this story, and this is what I could find. Yeah. I guess, I mean, if... Probably once she found out if she's alive, if they're both alive, and they found out in the newspapers about Holmes, I'm sure they would have just kept completely silent. Like, that might just be, like, a long family secret. Oh, they're dead. <laughs> they're 100% dead. No oh, way. Think so? Yes, yeah. absolutely. They both just disappeared off the face of the earth, and it was after they had moved into the hotel. Okay. So they, I thought she maybe, like, ran away. I love your optimism. <laughs> so kind. You were definitely just a secret helpful doctor and I was married to some deviant. That was our past lives. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Once the fair had begun, the hotel really began to attract business. But Holmes was not content to merely prey on unsuspecting guests. He also put out want ads for young female hotel employees and chambermaids and listed himself in the classified ads as a man seeking a wife. Another likely Holmes paramour was a woman named Emmeline Sagrand, C-I-G-R-A-N-D-E. I'm going to say Sagrand. She responded to one of Holmes's want ads and began working in the building in May of 1892. She disappeared that December. And another woman who vanished after accepting a job at, a ho at the hotel was a woman named Edna Van Tessel. She was quite young and had worked at like a candy counter in the neighborhood and Holmes offered her a job. She is also believed to have been one of his victims as after she started working there, she was never seen again. 
But someone must have been looking for these young women, right? Why did no one come to the hotel and try to find them? He told them that he had devious competitors who would use any information possible to steal his clients at a hotel. Right. When the applicant arrived and Holmes was convinced that she had told no one of her destination, she would become his prisoner. She would be dead. She would be dead, much like us. (laughs) This is so terrifying. I know. (sighs) So this went on for four years. Holmes would operate his hotel, covertly torture and murder young women, many of whom people assume were his girlfriend. Holmes later confessed to 28 murders during his reign as king of the murder castle, though there are some that expected is much higher. 200 people reportedly went missing during the course of the Chicago World's Fair, and there are some who attribute every single one of them to H.H. Holmes. I'm going to call bullshit on that. Yeah. That is ridiculous. So many people passed through that fair. Mm -hmm. And some people were probably like runaways that said they were going to it and then just wanted to like start a life in the big city or something. No way, all 200. Anyway, we're not done. Oh, no, no, no. In 1893, Holmes travels to Boston on some unspecified business and meets a young woman named Minnie Williams and introduces himself uh, with the alias Henry Gordon. Holmes also had many, many aliases. He liked to make up names a lot. Minnie and her sister were orphaned at a young age, but taken in by a wealthy land-owning uncle. When their uncle died, Minnie and her sister Anna were left a tidy sum of money and a sizable home in Fort Worth, Texas. This, of course, piqued Holmes's interest, and by the time he was supposed to leave Boston, Minnie had agreed to go with him. There are some reports that say Minnie is an actress. I think, I don't think that's real, but I'm putting it out there just in case somebody's like, I love her play from 1892 or something. <laughs> Whatever. Minnie moves into the hotel, and soon after, she and Holmes are secretly married. So this is wife number three. Wow. As he is still technically married to uh, Clara, I believe. There are some reports that they eventually got a divorce, but again, that's very murky. I'm not sure how legal that was. And um, Myrta, the other woman that he just kind of went out on. Mm -hmm. So this is yet another woman that he apparently marries. Well, three is the charm. Three is the charm, but Minnie is not a legally documented wife. Okay. So whatever, there's no like marriage certificate for them. They got quote unquote married, but it wasn't in like city hall or anything. It was a spiritual marriage. Apparently it was. Minnie is of course offered a job at the hotel as all of his ladies are as his personal stenographer. And she enthusiastically accepts. Holmes persuades Minnie to transfer the deed to her property in Fort Worth, Texas, to a man named Alexander Bond, which was another alias that Holmes had. Not a secret agent? No. A secret, terrible person. In April of 1893, Minnie transfers the deed, with Holmes serving as the notary. Holmes later signed the deed over to Benjamin Peitzel. Remember him? Giving him the alias Benton T. Lyman. They love a good fake name. Love it. If you were going to make up a name for yourself to do like shady things with, what would it be? Um, I don't know. I don't know either, but it's interesting to think about. I have my rapper name. What's your rapper name? Whole Wheat Shorty. Whole Wheat Shorty? Mm-hmm. Like from Wawa? Yeah. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's your, that's your fake murder name too. I love it. <laughs> um. I don't know what I would use. I have to think about it. I think we should talk about this in the Facebook group because that sounds really fun. Yeah. So anyway, the next month, Holmes and Williams 
that's Minnie, sorry, Holmes and Minnie Williams, who he had married, present themselves as husband and wife and rent an apartment in Chicago's Lincoln Park. Minnie's sister, Annie, comes to visit them, and in late July, she wrote to her aunt that she planned to accompany, quote, Brother Harry, which was what she was calling him, to Europe. Neither Minnie nor Annie were ever seen alive again after July 5th, 1893. So he killed both of them too. With World's Fair business drying up and insurance companies breathing down his neck, Holmes decided to leave Chicago in July of 1894. But before he did, he made sure to find himself another wife. So this is actually three. Oh boy. Holmes met a lovely young woman named Georgiana Yoke in a department store and told her of his large Texan inheritance. He and Georgiana were married shortly after, and the pair then traveled to Fort Worth, where Holmes actually had inherited property from the Williams sisters, located at the intersection of modern-day Commerce Street and 2nd Street. There, he was going to um, construct another murder castle. He wanted to build another one in Texas that was just like his one in Chicago, Um, but that never came to pass. In July of 1894, Holmes was actually arrested and briefly incarcerated for the first time, which is shocking. I'm not sure how it, it took him that long to serve like a little time for something. But he was arrested on the charge of selling mortgaged goods in St. Louis, Missouri. He was pretty quickly bailed out. But during his brief stay in jail, he struck up a conversation with a convicted felon named, felon, sorry, named Marion Hedgepath, who was serving a 25-year sentence. Holmes had concocted a plan to swindle an insurance company out of 10000 which is $296,000 in 2019 dollars, by taking out a policy on himself and then faking his own death. He's going to turn the tables on himself. Holmes promised Hedgepath $500 commission in exchange for the name of a lawyer who could be trusted. Holmes was directed to a young St. Louis attorney named Jephthah Howe. Sorry. Jephthah Howe found Holmes' scheme brilliant on board immediately. It's a shady person who's like, yes, let's do this horrible thing. Holmes's plan to fake his own death failed, however, when the insurance company became suspicious and refused to pay him the money or whoever they were going to pay. They refused to pay it. Holmes did not press this matter. Instead, he just rebounded by concocting another plan using Benjamin Peitzel. Man, that guy was loyal. I keep thinking you're going to say pretzel. So, Benjamin Pretzel! Peitzel agreed to fake his own death so that his wife could collect on a $10,000 life insurance policy, which she was supposed to split with Holmes and Jephthah Howe. The scheme was supposed to take place in Philadelphia and called for Peitzel to set himself up as an inventor under the name B.F. Perry. (laughs) They love these names. I know. They just, they really love a name. He would then, um, this fake inventor would then be killed and disfigured in a lab explosion, like a mad scientist. Holmes' job was to find an appropriate cadaver to play the role of Peitzel like he had done back in medical school. But Holmes had a way better idea because at this point, Peitzel knew way too much and his share of the insurance payout would make Holmes's considerably smaller. So Holmes just killed Peitzel by knocking him unconscious with chloroform and setting his body on fire by dousing it with benzene and then setting it alight. In his confession, Holmes claims that Peitzel was still alive after he used the chloroform on him before he was set on fire. So he was set on fire alive. I only set him on fire because he didn't die from the chloroform and the head hitting. I know. He was sleeping, not dead. So I lit him on fire because that's the easiest way to go about it. See, doesn't it make sense? (laughs) Well, he was going to claim he died in a fire. So it kind of does make sense. 
However, forensic evidence presented later at Holmes's trial showed that chloroform had been administered to Peitzel after his death, presumably to fake a suicide and exonerate Holmes in the event that he was to be charged with murder. So Holmes burned his insanely loyal henchman to death while he was alive and conscious just to catch up. Thank you. After the fire, police find Benjamin Peitzel and they immediately initially just accept that it was clearly like a horrible accident. They're like, oh no, he died in a fire. So terrible. Holmes collects the insurance payout on the basis of Peitzel's actual corpse. Holmes then went on to manipulate Peitzel's unsuspecting wife into allowing three of her five children to be put into his custody for no fucking reason. The eldest daughter and the baby remained with Mrs. Peitzel, but their other three, uh, I believe, I don't know who they were, sorry, traveled throughout the northern United States and into Canada. Simultaneously, Holmes had escorted Mrs. Peitzel along a parallel route while using various aliases and lying to Mrs. Peitzel concerning her husband's death. He would tell her that Benjamin had gone on a trip to London and she was like, oh, great, okay. <laughs> Poor sweet dummy. He would also lie about her, lie to her about the true whereabouts of their three missing children. In Detroit, just prior to entering Canada, Mrs. Peitzel and her missing children were only separated by a few blocks. That's sad. Holmes would later confess to murdering Alice and Nellie, those are both Peitzel children, by forcing them into a large trunk and locking them inside. He drilled a hole in the lid of the trunk and put one end of a hose through the hole, attaching the other end to a gas line, asphyxiating the girls, just like he did in his hotel. He loves a little gas chamber. Holmes buried their nude bodies in the cellar of his rental house at 16 Vincent Street in Toronto. This home and address no longer exist, so you can't visit that one. Frank Geyer, a Philadelphia police detective assigned to investigate Holmes and find the three missing children, found the decomposed bodies of the two girls in the cellar of the Toronto home. Detective Geyer wrote, quote, The deeper we dug, the more horrible the odor became. And when we reached the depth of three feet, we discovered what appeared to be the bone of the forearm of a human being. Geyer then went to Indianapolis, where Holmes had gone on to and rented a cottage. Holmes was reported to have visited a local pharmacy to purchase drugs, which he used to kill the remaining Peitzel children. Sorry, the remaining Peitzel child, Howard. And he also was seen at a repair shop where he sharpened the knives he used to chop the body up before he burnt it. Mm, Not a great gift for Santa. No. Holmes's murder spree finally ended when he was arrested in Boston. Although I don't think you can call it a spree. I'm going to take that word back because a spree is like quick and this was over years. Right. This ended um, during his arrest in Boston uh, on November 17th after being, 1894, after being tracked there by, um, from Philadelphia by a Pinkerton detectives. After all the atrocities he had committed, he was held and arrested on an outstanding warrant for horse theft in Texas. What? Mm-hmm. While he was in Texas. That's what they got yep. on? While he was in Texas for a little bit at the house he had inherited, he stole a couple horses. And that's the crime they eventually caught him on. Well, at least it was something. Yep. As the (laughs) authorities had become more suspicious at this point, and Holmes appeared to be like getting ready to flee the country with his sad, unsuspecting third wife, poor Georgiana was in tow this whole time and she knew nothing. Georgiana. Well, she later went on to testify against him. So she comes through in the end. Okay. Thank you, girl. Yeah. Way to go, third wife. Following the discovery of Alex and Nellie, 
Benjamin's daughter's bodies in in sorry July of 1895 Chicago police and reporters began investigating Holmes's building in Englewood now referred to as the castle though many sensational claims were made no evidence was found which could have convicted Holmes in Chicago stories of torture equipment found in the building are fiction like I said there was no medieval rack there was no like shackles or anything else you want to think about when you think of torture rooms I really just think he like dissected people and then used their skeletons At the end of the day, he was mostly an insurance scammer. In October of 1895, Holmes was put on trial for the murder of Benjamin Peitzel and was found guilty and sentenced to death. By then, it was evident that Holmes had also murdered the Peitzel children. Following his conviction, Holmes confessed to 27 additional murders in Chicago, Indianapolis, and Toronto, though some murders he confessed to were clearly false as they were people who were still alive or had been documented dying of other causes. Holmes was paid $7,500 which is 230000 today dollars, by the Hearst newspapers in exchange for his confession, which was quickly found to be most, mostly bullshit. But he wanted to make a good story. Holmes gave various contradictory accounts of his life, claiming he was innocent, and then he claims he was possessed by Satan, and that's why he committed his crimes. His propensity for lying is what has made this case so difficult to research and the truth so difficult to ascertain because you have to discount any of his actual statements and only go on evidence, of which there wasn't a lot, because any and all bodies were destroyed in that hotel. On May 7th, 1896, Holmes was hanged at the Moyamensing Prison in Philadelphia, which also briefly housed Edgar Allan Poe for public drunkenness. Oh, I know. love me some Poe. Me too. He got real drunk in Philly, and they put him in jail for a couple nights. Sounds about right. Yeah, that was his thing. <laughs> um... Until the moment of his death, H.H. Holmes remained calm, collected, never showed a sign of being nervous or depressed. But he did ask for his coffin to be encapsulated in cement and the whole thing to be buried 10 feet down because he was very concerned that grave robbers would steal his body and use it to sell for dissection, which makes sense. Probably right. Yeah. Enter Birkin Hare. Yeah. (laughs) Holmes's execution was something of a spectacle. As when he was hanged, his neck did not snap. Now, normally a hanging is supposed to break the person's neck and kill them instantly. However, if that doesn't happen, they just kind of dangle and strangle, which is what happened to H.H. Holmes. He died slowly twitching over the course of 15 minutes before being pronounced dead 20 minutes after the trap door had been sprung. Wow. That is a rough death. Yeah. I can't say he didn't earn it, though. Super deserved. Mm-hmm. On March 7th, 1914, the Chicago Tribune reported that the death of a man with the last name of Quinlan, who was the former caretaker of the murder castle, like after Holmes left it, the mysteries of the murder castle would remain unexplained as Quinlan had committed suicide by taking strychnine. His body was found in his bedroom with a note that read, quote, I couldn't sleep. Ugh. Quinlan's surviving relatives claimed that he had been haunted for years and was suffering from hallucinations while he was in that building, which, like, probably teeming with ghosts, so. Yeah. The castle itself was mysteriously gutted by a fire in August of 1895. According to a newspaper clipping from the New York Times, two men were seen entering the back of the building between 8 and 9 p.m. About a half an hour later, they were seen exiting the building and rapidly running away. Following several explosions, the castle went up in flames. Afterwards, investigators found a half-empty gas gas can underneath the back steps of the building. The building survived the fire and remained in use 
until it was torn down in 1938. Oh, wow. I I would just think the community would want it torn down immediately. But nope. The site is now occupied by the Englewood branch of the United States Postal Service. (laughs) Great. An interesting, like, little ending note on this is that in 2017, amid allegations that Holmes had, in fact, escaped execution, so some people were like, he got away, which is bizarre because his execution was very well documented and, like, a huge spectacle, Um, but some people said he got away. Holmes's body was exhumed for testing. Uh, And this was led by a woman named Janet Mong of the University of Pennsylvania Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology. Due to Holmes's coffin being contained in cement, his body was found to have not decomposed normally. His clothes were almost perfectly preserved and his mustache was found intact. Gross. Yep. The body was positively identified as being Holmes by uh, dentals, dental records, used his teeth. Holmes was then reburied. I will end this story with a quote from H.H. himself, taken on the stand when accused of the murder of Benjamin Peitzel. Quote, I was born with the devil in me. I could not help the fact that I was a murderer, no more than the poet can help the inspiration to sing. I was born with the evil one, standing as my sponsor beside the bed where I was ushered into the world, and he has been with me since. End quote. And that is the sordid and complicated tale. Of H. H. Holmes. Do you think that he was, uh, when he looked at that s- skeleton for the first time as a child, mm-hmm. do you think like the hand of the devil went on his shoulder? He was like, you are now mine, child. And that was the moment. Oh, I'd be so full of devils if that was the case because I love skeletons. No, I think it was just his. Okay, Yours cool. Is much more like pure. I like it for like sciencey <laughs> and artsy reasons. Yeah. I don't mm-hmm. want to, like, get a skeleton, like, pull it out of a person. I just like to look at other ones. <laughs> just lift <laughs> it right out of a person. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <sighs> wow. That was interesting. That's a lot, right? I felt like I was listening to uh, someone else's podcast, and I was, like, super into it. Oh, I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad yeah. that you were into it. <laughs> uh, I know that some of that is probably a little bit confusing. And, again, that is solely because I, I have, like, a lot of sources I will list some of them in the show notes um, of this episode and you guys can read some of them if you like. Just go read The Devil in White City because it's more fun. <laughs> but, but not totally true. Um, and if anybody has questions, you can hit me up on any of our socials or anything like that. Do you have any questions, Leslie? A lot of people claim that he killed 200 people, but we can only confirm nine. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. But I feel like it would definitely have to... When you were going through the bodies that the police found... I feel like it would have to have been more if he had a whole hotel filled with stuff. Chambers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm sure that there were more than nine just based on like the basement that was designed for like completely ridding any evidence of a body. I just don't think it was 200. And the reason people latch onto that number is it is it is the reported number of missing people at the Chicago World's Fair for the duration. Now, the thing with that is people he killed, they also weren't just like people that stayed there. A lot of times they were people he hired to work at the hotel. Right. So even if you were going to latch on to that 200 number based on just people that were like at the fair that were patrons, it would be more than that then because he also killed people who he brought in to work there. 
Well, that would make sense because if he had people staying at the hotel, he would need them to actually pay to stay there exactly. to sustain the hotel. So he would just be killing. And because otherwise you would have to enter them into their hotel room and immediately like start doing whatever you were going mm-hmm. to do because it would be a weird chamber of sorts. Well, the the well the thing was with those weird little chambers is that they would they had trap doors from other rooms. Oh, true. So yeah. you'd be in like a normal room. The door would open up and you would drive drop into this like oh god i'm never staying in a hotel now <laughs> we're done just make sure your room I'm has done. a door oh thank god for covid now oh god <laughs> <laughs> sorry yeah a lot of those rooms were not accessible through like hotel room doors they were through a trap door that was attached to another like normal looking hotel room okay and any of the women this is my suspicion any of the women who are staying cuz he seemed to only kill women that were staying at the hotel that he killed, I, I'm pretty sure they were women he probably like had a little fling with. Mm-hmm. So they trusted him and he could make that shit happen. I don't think he just dropped the floor out from unsuspecting guests. I think it was women who he would know would be in a certain place at a certain time because he, he knew where they were going to be because they were fooling around. Ugh, I hate it. I know. That's the thing, though. He was also like a huge womanizer. Yeah. His his mustache was hideous. I don't know how that worked, but whatever. <laughs> yes, it was the times. Mm. People are going to be like, ew, why did women like men with beards? It'll be like, it was a thing. It was a okay. thing at, what, at a, it was a time. We love it. I love me a lumberjack. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you, girl. <laughs> and I, I believe when Holmes was executed, he was... I didn't document this, so I you can't really quote me on it. I might look it up real quick, but I think he was only like 34. He was really young. Yeah, that makes sense. He was 20 when he got married the first time. Yeah, for the first time. I think when he finally got executed, I'm going to look it up right now. I know he was in his 30s, but I don't want to say like a precise mm-hmm. age without backing it up. Um, I can't believe I didn't write that down. Oh, well. It's okay. I didn't write down how long the World Fair lasted because I thought it was like three days. <laughs> oh, no. It was a long time. I know, but it sounded like it ended within like six months. So he was 30. Yeah, he was 34. I got it right. Oh. It was short, shortly before his 35th birthday. He died on May 7th and his birthday was May 16th, I think I said. So he, that's pretty young for all he was able to accomplish. <laughs> Wow. Mm-hmm. Ugh, I'm 33. What have I done with my life? Get to murdering, Leslie. <laughs> this was a wild story. It's a it's a ride. And listen, anybody who does their independent research on H.H. Holmes, you are going to find a lot of different facts. You're going to find different versions from the story that I just told. Some of the names are going to be a little different. Some of the dates are going to be a little different. We're We're just going to have to... This is the the story that I could present based on everything I read. So if you find other stuff, it's totally okay. There are a lot, a lot of retellings. So, <laughs> wow. I know I can't stress that enough because I hate like I really try hard to make sure that our facts are as correct as facts can be. But this one, it's just really hard to know. So toast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Who Ooh, I think I came up with my alter ego's name. <gasps> Tell me. Aaron Wyoming. Oh, I like that. Yeah. I I think that I took the method of finding your porn star name. Oh, what's that? It's your middle name and your uh, street name. I didn't know that was your middle name. I'm telling you guys that now, so I'll have a completely different alter ego. Obviously, you're not going to use that one. 
I'm not, I can't use it now, but. By that logic, it's a street you grew up on, right? Yeah. By that logic, I would be Marie Thorntown. <laughs> oh, yes. That is great. <laughs> Sounds like a detective. <laughs> yeah, I love it. All right, but Leslie and I are never going to use those names, so don't look for them. Yeah. <laughs> wink. <laughs> wink, wink. <laughs> Who should we toast? I have no idea. Who did you feel connected to when you wrote this down? I like, um, let me think. One of his many wives. I think his first wife. Either his first wife or his third wife. I was going to say maybe the... Th- well, so yeah, either either one of those. His first wife's name was Clara, mm-hmm. but she got out of it before anything got really, really bad. And she got to go back to her like wealthy family and be fine. I would say his third wife, Georgiana, who was like living with him on the run while all of this nonsense was happening. And he was like murdering Benjamin Peitzel and his children. And she didn't know any of that was happening. It was happening like right under her nose. So when she found that all out, it was like a horrifying shock. And she's the only one not legally married to him. So she doesn't have any rights to any of that money. No, she was legally married to him. The weird middle one. Oh, I thought she wasn't. Mm -mm, The weird middle one wasn't Minnie. They were like secretly married, but not really. Oh, okay. My apologies. Georgiana is the only one that lived through it. Oh, right. Well, well, I think the other ones got away. They did not. But okay. You're so positive. So cheers. Cheers to Georgiana. And way to and she testified. So way to be helpful. Yes. Thank you, Georgiana. And we have another toast. Right? Oh yeah. We have a new patron this week. Ooh, ooh. New patron. Who's our patron? Yes. Uh Veronica Grisham. Woohoo! Veronica. My my little potter head. Aw. So yeah. She's been at like all of our campfires. She's an awesome supporter and we love you, Veronica. Thank you for everything. Yes. Thank you, girl. So cheers to Veronica. Cheers. Oh, she's also part of my book club. So, <laughs> so she's Veronica <laughs> from book club, much like Heidi from book yeah. club. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One day when we're very, very famous and there are t-shirts that say Heidi from book club. <laughs> I know. <laughs> oh my God. She would love that. It'd be perfect. Awesome. <laughs> all right. I think. I think that's all the stuff. That's it. I know. It's a lot of information to take in. So I'll, let me let me sign us off. Um, <laughs> I think we've already said how we would be dead like a hundred times. Yeah, repeat it. <laughs> and if we were approached by a handsome young doctor offering us the world, we would be dead. We would be dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. Clang, clang, clang with the trolley. Ding, 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 what the bell. Yes, we (laughs) We got it. it.